Welcome to Radical Resilience, the podcast. I'm your host, Pega Kadkodian. Resilience is more than just learning to bounce back from adversity. It is both a spiritual and practical journey of returning to the essence of who you are. With Radical Resilience, life can throw anything at you, and no matter how tossed around you get, no matter how hard you fall, you have the ability to get back up and come home to yourself. Hear the inspirational stories of women who embody radical resilience and learn the resources you need to reclaim your passion, purpose, and power. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Radical Resilience, the podcast. I am your host, Pega Kadkodian. I am so honored to have today's guest with us today. She is a soul sister, someone I met at a retreat and had an instant kinship with. I was so happy that we had found each other. Um, She's a cognitive hypnotherapist. She's getting her PhD in neuropsychology, and she's actually looking at well-being in people with chronic neurological illness. She's studying how to help cultivate more well-being in people with chronic neurological illness. She is an amazing woman. And with all of those credentials, more importantly, she's here to talk to you about her journey of resilience and what it took for her to put her cape down. And by that, I mean what it took for her to decide that she didn't have to be the superwoman, wonder woman, and all things to all people. And uh, I think that is a narrative that many of us live in. And I think her story is inspiring and poignant and there's a lot of wisdom uh, for us to glean from from what she's going to share with us so without further ado i'm really excited to introduce you to miss suzette shamoon hello <laughs> thank you for being here yeah it's a bit terrifying when i'm when you talk about me having that superhero complex because i didn't exactly i was never a superwoman or wonder woman um i just tried really really hard <laughs> but i don't think i ever really achieved it because i am human um so it's quite entertaining for me to hear that reflected back to me well i think it's really important you know for our listeners to hear that too which is I think many of us who are type A perfectionist folks who are up to something, who are wanting to achieve big things uh, in our careers and our lives, um, tend to want to believe that we are superhuman and that we can do it all and that we, you know, this conversation is important for us to have. There is no such thing as being Wonder Woman or Superwoman. And I actually taught a workshop with a friend of mine called Overcoming the Wonder Woman Effect. And in as much as she is a brilliant archetype for young women in terms of being, you know, powerful and, you know, a model of strength and, uh, you know, being able to do anything that a man can do and more, in fact, there's some danger in us putting superheroes on a pedestal and aspiring to be that as as women you know because it's like actually we're human putting an expectation on ourselves of being that wonder woman or that that superhuman results in us feeling less than and like we are somehow failing at life you know and we end up comparing ourselves to one another and that just leads to despair i think i don't know what do you think i think if you had given me that workshop 25 years ago you could have saved me a heck of a lot of pain (laughs) emotional and physical um where were you 25 years ago (laughs) 
my work with the women I do, that they do feel like they have to be superhuman and wonder women because there is a narrative in our society that women have to be able to do everything and be all things to all people. And so a lot of the work I do is is in dealing with that, the burnout that comes with that and dealing with the sort of existential crisis that can come when there's too much of that. And so, you know, my work in resilience has, has really predominantly been with women who are in crisis, but uh, that crisis has been like a, a beautiful and profound wake up call for them to go, oh, I can do it differently. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That definitely resonates. <laughs> Tell us a little more about your uh, incredible story of putting down the cape. <laughs> For me, my story is very similar to many people's. My husband was diagnosed with young onset Parkinson's disease when three years into our marriage, he was 28 and I was 23. Um, and I, I, I never really identified with the term caregiver. I was a wife. And at the age of 23, when all of a sudden I had two young children already, and we were given this diagnosis together, it shattered both of our visions of the future because all of a sudden we didn't know what our future was going to be. You know, when you're, when you're in your 20s, you, you have expectations that you have all of this time ahead of you and you've got your life ahead of you and all of a sudden it's like, oh, yes, we have our life ahead of us, but it's not going to look the way we expected it to look. I went into overdrive of, well, I have kids and I don't want this to impact on them. When I was growing up, I had a friend whose father was unwell. And I remember always walking into his house and he was sad. He was always very sad and he had an ill parent and I didn't want that to be my children's experience. So for me, that was the moment my husband received that diagnosis. It was that that will not be my children's existence. My kids are going to have fun. They're going to have a meaningful, fun life and did my absolute best to implement that. But while doing that, I kind of forgot about everything else. My focus was on them. My focus was on him. And I forgot a little bit about me, which even as I say it now, I feel a bit selfish saying, because when you've got people who are dependent on you, and he wasn't dependent immediately, you know, he's he's an incredibly strong um, and emotionally strong and and a vibrant character so it's he was never fully dependent anyway but as he became physically more dependent over the years to think what about me feels wrong even now and I work with people who are in similar situations to the one that I was in um, and I know that that's not true but it still feels when it's related to me it still feels wrong uh, to have that what about me thought so I'm still not 100% there yet <laughs> with it. It's important to give voice to that. You know, I think a lot of people can relate. In theory, yes, you know, put your oxygen mask on first, take care of your own needs first so that you can show up for other people. But the reality of it is that there is an undercurrent of guilt that comes with that, you know, because we've been so heavily indoctrinated into this belief that you know, as a mom, there, there is this undercurrent of guilt that comes with saying, I need to put my needs first because there is an expectation that you put the needs of other people first. And that just is kind of indoctrinated into us, I think, as women, that your kids should come first, your family should come first. Um, oftentimes, you know, for people who are uh, 
very focused on their careers. They put their careers and their work first, you know, and, and really do neglect anything that would um, be identified as, as, as real true self-care, you know, because it does, because it does feel kind of selfish. Absolutely. It does. And, and the funny thing is, is that we found ourselves in this situation where even if my husband would try to put me first, I would reject it. I, I wasn't good at accepting help from anyone there because I wanted my kids to have this incredibly fun childhood. I did my best not to complain or tell people what was going on for me on the inside. Um, you know, my kids didn't even know their father was ill until much later on in in our journey. It was only when he had a, a problem with his medication and he had to be taken off his medication and he ended up in bed for about a year. That was when my kids had that wake up call of, oh my God, daddy's actually really unwell. And in, in that time, I did my best even then not to, you know, to remain stoic, to remain uh, centered on what was good in my life and, you know, all the things that we learn about in positive psychology, you know, focus on what you have, not what you don't, which is fantastic and it works, but you can overuse that. And that's something that I found out for myself when I end up in hospital and I needed spinal surgery because I hadn't taken care of myself. And it was that wake up call for me of, oh, hell, I'm not superhuman. <laughs> I actually can't do this. And I definitely can't do this alone. And that that's a tough lesson. It's a really, really tough lesson. Can you speak to that wake up call some more? I mean, you know, you just said you ended up in the hospital, you needed spinal surgery. There was all these, the, the byproduct of neglecting yourself for, for, for so long was that it was, it was pretty costly to you. So can you just kind of speak to that moment and that realization and that aha that you had <laughs> so the aha the aha moment actually was was not thanks to me funnily enough um so by this point i had four four kids uh i have four kids um i was taken into hospital the night before my surgery because my surgeon knew i would not rest <laughs> before surgery if i was at home and the the night before my surgery my pain specialist came in and he sat down and he's like hun you know, hopefully everything will go well for you tomorrow. You will go out of here and you will walk out and you will be fine. But if you don't start changing your life, you'll be back. And I can assure you that within a few years, your children will have two disabled parents. That was when I, admittedly, I turned around to him and was like, you have no idea what you're talking about. I can't change my life. I have a husband who is very unwell at this point, this was when my husband was in bed or he was, he was quite immobile. It was, I couldn't imagine, how do I change my life? You're, you're asking me to take care of myself. How? I, I actually don't know how, but the next six weeks was six weeks of recovery. I couldn't do anything. I was stuck at home. I was completely incapacitated. I couldn't even lift a glass for the first week, two weeks. Um, I had to ask for everything. And that was probably one of the most painful lessons I've ever been through. See, even, you know, I had horrible pregnancies and I was in, in hospital with each of them, but I slept through those. So I never actually had to ask for help. Whereas 
here I had to ask for help and that voice in my head kept playing over and over you know if you don't change your kids are going to end up in a worse place than what you want for them and that was when I decided that's it I, I need to start doing something for me and my husband was amazing he I sat him down and I said you know my life is doctors I we live at doctors I I can't remember a time in the, the five years prior to my surgery where I didn't spend at least one every week I was either in a doctor surgery or in a hospital there was never a week without that that was my life and I remember turning around to him going this can't be just be the focus of my life anymore I need to do more um, and he was amazing he was like do what you have to do and I support you and that was when I decided to go and train as a therapist so I could help more people, but in a structured way. <laughs> um, but I did it for me. It was different. It was on my terms. Yeah. So it was for you. It was on, it was on your terms and now you were prioritizing your needs and, and what was important to you. And how did that, so I know that that must've been, that, that must've taken uh, some, some doing, some sort of real mental retraining to get used to that. Oh, I felt guilty. Oh my God, I had guilt. Uh, I struggled immensely with it. But, but as I said, he, he supported me. My girls supported me. Everyone around me supported me. And that was, that was when I started to notice the, the importance of community, the importance of letting people know what's important to me as well as what's important for my family. And when I did, the, the level of support that I got from everyone around me was mind-blowing. And I, I expected people to, I'm a people pleaser, and I thought, you know, people would be very upset with me. You know, how could you? How could you be leaving your husband and children to work? And, you know, how do you manage all of it? And, you know, I chose a, a, a vocation which I could be flexible with, right? I could, I could work any hours I wanted to work because you know therapy you you set your own hours and so it worked but i had a massive amount of guilt how did you process that guilt move through that guilt and and ultimately let go of that a lot of therapy <laughs> a lot of therapy a lot of going through my own personal narratives looking at why why do i put everyone else ahead of me why don't i count why don't i matter why do, why do I feel like uh, I'm not worthy of doing things for myself, having things for myself? Um, and it's, it's a narrative which haunts me. I don't think it's a narrative I will ever let go of. It's just a narrative I need to manage. I think we all have these narratives. Everyone has them. Everyone has the I'm not. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not thin enough. And I think that they serve a purpose. I don't think we... We don't have any of this by chance. Thank goodness for these narratives. They keep us humble. They keep us grounded. They, they make us better people. They make us nicer. Um, and so these are not narratives I would ever want to be free from, but I do need to manage them. And there are times when I manage them better than others. And there are times when they keep me up at night still. I think it's really important, you know, to highlight what you just said there, which is that we do all have these narratives 
uh, unconscious programs, if you will, and that it's important to find ways to work with those programs, create new narratives. You know, I, I do, you and I both, you know, coming from our, our NLP background, do a lot of work in terms of releasing some of those, uh, those limiting beliefs and letting go of some of those uh, narratives that we have been carrying around potentially for generations, uh, lifetimes even, you know, and, and really managing those unconscious programs that, um, that do dictate our, our behaviors. Um, but I always like to, to, to remind myself and my clients and, uh, you know, and, and would love to remind our listeners too, that, you know, we can, we can let go of those programs, but those narratives can still be with us because they're pretty heavily ingrained. And so even as we're clearing things from the unconscious mind, we're very habituated in our ways of thinking. And so in as much as we could let go of a limiting belief or a negative emotion, it takes a lot of repatterning and put it in neuroscience terms, you know, strengthening the new neural connections and those myelin sheaths so that we can find new ways of being, you know, because those, those old ways are, 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 we are very habituated in, in those old ways of those old narratives, you know. With every crisis, you have the opportunity to restart, to, to start afresh, but with new eyes, with new learnings, you, um, I once had a client, a little boy who was having issues, anger issues, and he was about nine years old, 10 years old. He was, he was really, really young. And I remember doing an intervention with him. And at the end of it, I asked him, you know, if there was something that you could learn and you could teach that, that younger you who was going through that crisis in that moment, what would it be? And he turned around to me and he said, you know, Lao Tzu in the, in the art of war says, when you fall in battle, pick yourself up, learn what went wrong and take it out into the next battle. And his mother was sat next to me and I looked at her, I'm like, what? She looks, she's like, I have no idea where he got it from, <laughs> but it was amazing. And, you know, you, you take moments like that. I think you always meet who you need when you need them in life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that little boy inspired me. And I, you know, I could have read that myself, but hearing it in that context was so powerful. And yeah, every time I've had a crisis and I've had a fair few, um, that that's what I do. It's okay. All right, this hasn't worked out and it's pretty rubbish and I'm sad and it's making me miserable, but okay, who can I be in the face of this? Mm. What can I take from this? What have I learned from this? How is this going to serve me in life? How is this going to make me stronger? And don't get me wrong, it can take me a year like it could take me a week to go through that process of, of going through this. I'm I'm by no means that enlightened that I can do it in the minute. But that's that's kind of the process that I've learned to go through. And it is a process. Absolutely. I love what you just said there. Like, who can I be in the face of this? Because my definition of resilience is a coming home to yourself, coming back home to your essential self and, and getting to know your inherent value and worth. And when you say, who can I be in the face of this? Who can I be in, in this moment? Who do I want to be in the face of this? That begins the journey back home you know, back to who you really are, like to the essential aspect of you, free of all of the expectations, free of all of your external identifiers. Absolutely. I think I just want to say 
that that was a term which Maria Sirwa taught me. Um, it's not mine. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend it is. But it's something which has served me greatly um, in the past few years. It's it's that question that I ask myself regularly whenever I come up against any challenge, great or small. It's who can I be? Who am I going to be in the face of this? And mm. what strengths do I have? What are my inner resources? How am I going to use them? It, I, I question myself constantly now whenever I'm faced with any challenge. And that's, that's how I cultivate my inner resilience. It's by asking myself those kind of questions. Yes. Well, that right there is a beautiful segue to the questions that I have for you, as you know. And the first one is, what is one thing you did to cultivate your inner resilience, which you just answered so beautifully? So thank you for that. If you wouldn't mind just saying that one more time. I question myself. I have affirmations that I make on a regular basis. Um, I've done that all my life, actually. The affirmations I've always done. I wake up in the morning and and I will, I will start with thank you for everything I have and everything I don't, everything you give me and everything you won't. It just reminds me to be um, aware that whatever challenges I receive are for my betterment, even if I don't want them. And asking myself, you know, how am I going to cope with this? Yeah. And just to clarify, you know, questioning yourself, not being, oh, I'm going to doubt myself, but rather asking yourself the right questions, you know, like, who do I want to be? What is there for me to learn? I love that. That's so great. Okay. Number two, your favorite self-care practice. What is your favorite self-care practice? Okay. So I've always relied on two, but in reality, they've not been enough, but the two that I've relied on always have been walking. I like to walk and I realize now that I use walking as a form of meditation because when I'm out walking, I allow thoughts to come into my head, but I don't ruminate. I don't mm -hmm. question. I just notice them and let them go. So walking is definitely one. Um, and writing. I've always loved to write. It's the way that I process my emotions. Um, if I'm in a state, I will write about my feelings. If I'm lonely, I will write an email to a friend. If I am sad, I will write a gratitude letter to someone because that reminds me of how much I've got to be grateful for and the people that I've met in my life. Awesome. I love it. Your three favorite personal development or spiritual teachers, living or deceased? Okay. So the first one would have to be Travis Sylvester. He runs the Quest Institute. He created the model of cognitive hypnotherapy. He's the person who trained me. He's the person who gave me a structure for caring, a structure for doing what I want to do in life, which is help people, facilitate people to have better lives. But he's also the person who called me out on my stuff um, and taught me that I was being a martyr and he would horribly named me Saint Suzette, which he knew I hated. Um, and he he taught me to to start looking at myself. And also he taught me to to see others um to notice intention, to not forget intention behind other people's actions. I would always take things very personally, even when things weren't personal. And he was the one who said, you know, we're all fellow strugglers at the end of the day and everyone's got their stuff. So if someone is throwing their stuff at you, never confuse it for your own. Take ownership of your stuff, 
but whatever's not yours, leave it with them. Mm. So two more. Mark Matusek, absolutely adore that man. Um, oh, okay. So Mark Matusek, he he runs various um, online courses and retreats. He's a, a phenomenal writer. He wrote a brilliant book called When You're Falling Dive. He's written many books, um, but but that was the one that clinched it for me. Um, he was my writing coach. He made me aware of the narratives that I was running in my life. Again, another man who's called me on my stuff. He's based in the States. Um, he, I think he's in upstate New York. I'm going in chronological order. The next one would be Tal Ben-Shahar because he was probably the first um, academic authority who allowed me to debate him without making me feel like an idiot. <laughs> um, he held the space for me to um, debate my ideas, grow my ideas, uh, develop my ideas, and he's got the most phenomenal knowledge and you know, there was no sense of superiority with him. He just allowed me to be me I will go to him and ask him for his incredible wealth of knowledge. And yeah, it's definitely, he's, he's, he's got uh, the Happiness Studies Academy. He's a teacher of, of positive psychology. He was uh, at Harvard. He's now at Columbia. Again, another fantastic person. Thank you for that. Okay. And this one's kind of a fun one. And, you know, I'll, I'll let you see what you have to say. I, I love this one. Someone asked me this question once and I was like, Ooh, I like that. So who's in your power posse? These could be actual people. These could be, you know, angels that you call upon deities whose energy you call upon, you know, again, like the energies of, of people, angels, deities that you call upon when you're going through hard moments. Uh, so without a doubt, my grandmother, my grandmother was the most amazing, loving woman. She was the woman who every grandchild, when she passed away, thought that they were her favorite grandchild, which was ridiculous because I was. So grandma, Oscar Wilde, damn, oh, that man's wit. <laughs> Brene Brown, for sure. Her work on connection, how she started, that's, that's inspired me. Um, Archangel Gabriel was the inspiration is the reason I, I named my daughter Gabriella, because I always felt that that sense of um, strength. Uh, Raphael for healing. Um, mm. Yeah, I believe in angels, Archangel Michael. Um, mm. Yeah, I think those are my main go-tos. Yeah, that's definitely. <laughs> Great. I'm always curious to know, and I'm just like, you know, I'm just start asking all the guests because I think it's fun. So your top three all-time favorite books, you don't even need to tell us why. You know, you can just name the titles and the authors. Okay, the first one you will know, Cyrano de Bergerac, favorite play. Absolutely love it. Power of Words. Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, beautiful book. Mm -hmm. um, and Fate and Destiny by Michael Mead. Thank you. I will have to check that out. And then this last question I, I've sat with before and I think is, is such a lovely one to ponder. What would you tell your younger self with the wisdom you have acquired? What I would tell my younger self is what I need to keep telling myself now. Um, you are enough. You are enough. Whatever is going on in your life, no matter how small you feel, no matter how much you feel, you've not done enough. You are not good enough. You're not smart enough. You are enough. Just trust. You were created like this. You were not created like anyone else. You were created the way you are. And that just has to be enough. Just be the best version of you. And that will always be enough. I love that. I think it's a beautiful message for all of us and for all of our listeners. 
so thank you for that. What a beautiful bit of wisdom to leave our listeners with. So Suzette, I, I want to just uh, really, really briefly highlight too that you're doing this wonderful work on uh, well-being uh, in people who have the uh, neurological illnesses. And um, in addition to that, you know, your work on connection is, is so beautiful. You shared with my uh, radical resilience group the other day, um, the, the research that you've done on connection. So if our listeners want to get in touch with you, learn more about your work, how can they do that? Oh, this is when you, you start telling me I need to do more social media, right? For someone who talks about connection, it's hilarious how hard it is to connect to me. Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn, Suzette Shamoon. You can always send me an email, Suzette at SuzetteShamoon.com. Um, they can connect through to me. Um, I am on Facebook under Susie Moon, but it does say Suzette Shamoon as well. Susie, S-U-Z-I-E, Moon. Yeah, I love to hear from people. I love to connect with people. I would, I know I need to do more social media. I just don't, yeah, I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> well, you know, as long as we can find you somewhere, it's all good. And I would, I would actually love to have you on again to speak to us about the the work you've done um, around connection. I mean, and you hinted at one of the big things that brought about your resilience in your moment of crisis was community. So I'd actually love to uh, have you back to speak to us about connection and what that means to you. Um, but love the, the conversation today. Appreciate you so much for your willingness to come on and vulnerably share with us your story of uh, resilience as it pertains to um, letting go of the need to be Wonder Woman, you know, and coming back <laughs> and, and finding a way to put your own needs first. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for having me on. This was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you all so much for tuning in and continuing to be a part of this uh, tribe and this Radical Resilience family. We will be back again with another amazing guest next week. For now, wishing you so much love, light, and aloha. Namaste. I'm Pega Cadcodian. Thank you for listening to Radical Resilience, the podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Be sure to go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and rate. And remember to share this with all the amazing women in your life. Join us next week for another episode of Radical Resilience, the podcast.